0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Doroshenko.
0: And uh, today, Paul, I wanted to talk about what everyone's talking about. I know you don't want to talk about it. You say it's been talked to death, but Greyhound.
1: No, it's not that it's it's been talked to death. I mean, it's been it's been um, discussed in many different ways. Um, you know, there's lots of aspects to it that are are fascinating. The uh, uh, leader of the BC Liberal Party, is blaming uh, Greyhound's pullout uh, on the uh, NDP, and I don't see how any legislative change <laughs> the NDP has done has affected it, and they're also pulling out of Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So uh, oh, I, somebody somebody tweeted that the uh, the BC NDP's power must be vast and broad to yeah. compel Greyhound to also pull out of Manitoba and Saskatchewan.
0: I just wonder, like, how, uh, is there anything that could happen in the province? or federally that the B.C. Liberal Party wouldn't find a way to blame the NDP for. Yeah,
1: you know, you'd think that they would be smart and they would sit in the penalty box a little while, especially uh, after the uh, casino gate here and the money laundering scandal that uh, basically comes down to their mismanagement.
0: It's like, it, it, why not just bide your time, as, as with all governments? Eventually they're going to screw up in some embarrassing way, and then you get to point the finger, but you look like a jerk if you point the finger literally every time something bad happens. Yeah,
1: and especially when it's something that happened on your watch uh, and as a result of legislation that, you know, your government had because you were in power for well over a decade. But the other thing is it doesn't it, it doesn't uh, demonstrate any humility whatsoever.
0: I, I think a lot of the discussion obviously has been focusing on How people in the north are going to get around and how people in rural areas are going to get around. Uh, For me, as a Metis person, I have major concerns about how this decision is going to fail Indigenous people.
1: So, a little background if you uh, haven't, uh, if you don't live in BC or you haven't heard about this story, Greyhound has found that many of their routes are not profitable. uh, And so they've announced that in October 2018, they're going to discontinue many routes. And we're talking routes like uh, places like Blue River, um, you know, that are really remote communities where uh, where there, there's no other way to get there except driving. There's no airport or anything like that barrier. I don't think there's uh, an airport there. Really, the only way you can get around is, is if you've got a ride uh, or you've got a car. And um, the particular concern, I mean, there's a, a number of concerns. My first thought was what happens if you get a driving prohibition in B.C.? You get a three-month driving prohibition, and you can't get anywhere. You can't get to your if you work somewhere else. You can't get to work. Uh, but now, you know, the discussion has expanded, um, as you say, I guess, to a safety concern.
0: Well, I mean, it, it is. I'm, I'm not just an Indigenous person. I'm also a woman. and you know. Uh, have, you ever haven- ridden,
1: have you ever written the grant?
0: Uh, yes, I used to take the Greyhound to get to the ferry terminal because I didn't, like, translink the way that they had set it up. It took two and a half hours, and you took the Greyhound, and it took 25 minutes.
1: And the Greyhound, as I said, from Edmonton to Valemont, and I think that's one of the routes that's uh, going to be cancelled. Um, you know, it was uh, it was necessary for me to get there because my grandparents had driven there and weren't able to drive back, and the only way I could get there was to take the Greyhound. Uh, and I can think of so many different circumstances, you know, if you have medical care uh, in Kamloops, for example, and you live in uh, you live in Blue River or, or uh, Ebola. yeah, exactly. Or Evola. Yeah. I mean, they'll stop in Evola for you right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, but um, as far as things like that, like medical care and also protecting Indigenous women from being picked up on the side of the uh, of the highway of tears, those are responsibilities that a government has to their people. And so uh, while a lot of people might not think this is driving law related, what the government's obligations are might to some extent be to provide those services. I mean, you have, you, you have, the right to medical care in this country and the government has to facilitate that and I know that they'll reimburse for costs like greyhound costs and things like that as part of your MSP if, it, if you have no other way of getting there but if there's no greyhound and you can't get there shouldn't they be providing the service?
1: A lot of people are already discussing that as a government service or some sort of you know government contractor service or something like that uh, the, the there there is such a thing on the island. I see buses going around from BC transit, to BC Transit. So you know, it seems also, to me that but it it's could also,
0: be BC. If, BC Transit is not just the buses that are on the island. BC Transit is also the um, the buses that run in small communities um, throughout. Not just small, like like uh, Kamloops, Kelowna. All the bus services there is through BC Transit. It's only the Lower Mainland that's serviced by TransLink. Even you go to Chilliwack, it's BC Transit buses.
1: Well, this is a major concern, but I think it's a major concern that the government can sort out relatively quickly. And I think that there's certainly an opportunity for uh, smaller companies running smaller buses from uh, community to community. Uh, You know, I could see a daily service from Jasper to to Vailmont very easily. I could see a daily service from... you know, running from Vailmont to Kamloch and back. But it's going to
0: take so long to set that up, to properly staff it, to design the routes, to build your fee structure, to determine how to make it profitable, and to go through all the licensing and check processes. And I know the government has said, oh, we're going to fast track this. But I sincerely doubt they will have a working system in place in British Columbia in time for Greyhound's pullout? Well,
1: we're going to have to wait and see because I think uh, you know you uh, get some smart uh, business people involved who uh, can see it as an opportunity to make a little bit of money and run a business. And I suspect that we will have somebody up and running in many communities right away. And in some spots where it's not profitable, it may not exist. In some spots, it may not be uh, as necessary. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that it will exist in some form or another. Somebody will step in.
0: I'm going to give this idea away free because I've been thinking about something. I've talked about it to you a little bit since law school, um, dealing with the the driving and transportation industry and also indigenous people, Um, because there are certain tax exemptions and and benefits that indigenous uh, people and their companies that they run can obtain if they're doing something that's traditional. And for Métis people, one of the things that we did uh, was we transported people um, in various locations in Canada. And I wonder if other indigenous groups, you know, central to these areas or wherever, you know, Greyhound services are going to be needed, could step up and fill that gap and take advantage of all sorts of tax benefits and use as an economic development opportunity for their communities. I don't know, could we not have like flourishing indigenous transportation businesses in this country?
1: One would think that there should be a transportation obligation on behalf of the province, bearing in mind that at some point the B.C. provincial government in, in uh, uh, cahoots with the federal government took all the First Nations people who lived in the Robson Valley, which was likely thousands of people, and sent them on a forced march down to uh, areas around Kamloops where they were resettled, uh, their original uh, land being uh, in that uh, area of uh, of uh, Red Pass and Lucerne and McBride and uh, and Cash and Belmont, uh, that there should be a right for them to be able to travel back and forth there and an obligation on behalf of the government to ensure that.
0: And it may be that that an Indigenous group affected by that and affected by the Greyhound pullout, if nobody steps up and fills the need gap that they have, that they could sue the government to force them to provide that service. That would be a really interesting case.
1: I guess a traditional... um, Transportation, which certainly people had in the rivers going up the North Thompson and the Fraser, uh, you know, you can certainly establish that this was a transportation route that uh, uh, has been taken away and maybe should be provided and uh, maybe as a result of the fact that it was there that you should be able to continue to operate without uh, facing uh, taxes because there was no taxes before your uh, uh, the Canadian government
0: came along. There's a lot of really well documented footage um, for people across Canada that was created by the Hudson's Bay Company. So it'd be really interesting and relatively easy, I think, to establish because you would have this, this historical documentation. Hudson's Bay did these amazing like videos of all of the the transportation across Canada, the trap line. It wasn't a video,
1: Kyle. Like it would have been filmed.
0: Well, that's the same thing. It's not the same thing. Whatever. In any <laughs> event, it's uh, it's <laughs> this an interesting the thing. Studies podcast. We're, we're we're
1: we're we're trying to drag uh, hmm, try out a lot of things that probably uh, could never be uh, compelled to, and the government could never be compelled to fulfill. But it's an interesting thought process, and certainly it is a very legitimate concern, particularly when you look at the uh, the highway of tears and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the you know it appears apparent that many women have uh, been murdered um, hitchhiking on that highway. And uh, if we don't have safe transportation options for them, uh, we've run into that ongoing risk. It is a fairly remote highway.
0: Yeah. And speaking of remote highways and buses, I obviously the other big issue that's been in the news lately has been the charges that were laid against the driver of the vehicle that was involved in the Humboldt bus crash.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. You look at the photos, I went and read as many of the stories as I could find describing the actual accident, and I'm still trying to figure out what the uh, you know, dangerous driving part was. I well, know they kept
0: a, a lid, a really good lid, the police have on the information that they've gathered about the collision, but it sounds like and I mean, you know, they like to to talk and but it sounds like they've done a very thorough investigation collision reconstruction which I mean would be necessary in a case with consequences like this.
1: Well it's only three months out. Uh, I was asked um, when I was on a radio show the other day why it took so long and three months is (laughs) is a really really short period of time for an investigation like this but I'm I'm still at a loss to see what the dangerous driving was. And if you're if you're a lawyer, you probably know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, you know, there may be an offense, it might be running the stop sign, it might be a careless driving where there's a miscalculation that you know, it could be a missed shift as he's pulling out onto the highway. He's only been a truck driver for a month. Um, you know, there may be some uh, I don't know. Maybe criminal negligence causing death. I can't, can't see that. I like. I just don't see it. Criminal but the, negligence. It's a higher require, standard. Yeah. yeah, it would
0: be more difficult.
1: So I'm trying to see the uh, the intent. I was talking to an RCMP officer today about it, and um, you know, he was with me. He he just couldn't see how this could be a dangerous driving uh, case. I mean, dangerous driving causing death. And,
0: And bodily harm.
1: And bodily harm. And I I don't see how they can make that out. And the only thing is that there is a, well, there's sometimes a desire to approve a charge even though there's no significant likelihood of success because you're trying to uh, appease the families of the people and of the senseless death. Trying to provide some sense or something. But you
0: refer, though, to approving a charge because this is Saskatchewan, where it's a it's a police-laid information system. I know that the police, as they, as they announced, they've been doing this in consultation with Crown, but I also, you know, I see these cases, I, I, Alberta and Northwest Territory and Yukon, where I've defended clients, it's all police-laid information, so the Crown only gets involved after the fact, and by the time you get to the point of persuading a prosecutor that the case has no hope in hell, you, you're already, you know, close to or at your trial date.
1: Which is an interesting thing, actually, when you think about um, what how those files are resolved. So in Alberta, I've had a lot of files that fell apart for the Crown on the day of the trial. And the Crown, you know, the prosecutors are looking at it, and they probably were aware that that's the way it was going to go, but it was a police led information. And they, it seems very difficult to persuade a prosecutor in Alberta um, and in Ontario and in, in you know matters that I've handled outside of BC, it's been very hard to persuade a prosecutor to stay something or to do something uh, with a file as a result of the fact that it's a police led information and, and maybe they feel the police are so invested in it or something that they will just run it knowing that it's going to fall apart and, and, and as a consequence, they're running a lot of things that they shouldn't run mm-hmm. uh, and as a consequence, they've, you know, they've got delays in a lot of cases that they should run. and but you know, another
0: consequence i see of that is and and this is coming from the perspective of somebody who pra- who's been practicing majority of my career in bc um you know i'm called in the yukon but you know i don't take a lot of work there um but you you have a decent a desensitization on the bench to bad conduct on the part of police and bad charges. And that's why I think one of the reasons why the same offense in BC will get you a much lighter sentence than the same offense in Alberta, where certain charter arguments that work in BC do not work in Alberta.
1: Yeah, I know. I see that. In in BC, it's very rare for them to run a case that's, you know, sometimes you get a prosecutor who's Naive and overly optimistic—that's going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, that's not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that it's. Uh, you know, we're we're all different. Every lawyer is different, and we're going to try and run our case pursuant to our ethical obligations and so forth. But um, no, I mean, in in BC, we also don't see uh, the worst of police behavior. So it's kind of like the judges. It's all sort of fairly.
0: We don't, we the don't police
1: aren't. The, the courts don't see the police officers screwing up very
0: much. And we don't see the worst of the police behavior because we have crown-laid information where they review the file first, and if they get a glimpse of the worst of police behavior, you know that your client is most likely not going to end up
1: charged. But if you're a judge in B.C., you come up with this, this misapprehension that the police are really, really on their game. And if you're a judge in Alberta and you see how often, you know, These bad files also show up.
0: You Mm -hmm. might
1: get a better indication of uh, just how human the police are.
0: Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my theory is wrong. Cuts a couple couple ways.
1: One, a month. Goes. It cuts different ways. Yeah.
0: Okay. But what struck me—actually, no—I'm going to come back to what struck me the most. What I what I wanted to talk about because I think a lot of people who listen to the show are interested in driving law, but they don't know the law. And I thought we could spend a few minutes just breaking down what the prosecution needs to prove to prove dangerous driving um, or causing death or bodily harm.
1: Well, the death or bodily harm is usually the easy part to prove, but it's, it's the rest of it.
0: Not always. You still have to prove that it was the dangerous driving that caused that death or bodily harm. So you could have dangerous driving leading up to an accident, and then an accident that was caused by the negligence of the deceased and
1: the negligence of the other driver it could be the other driver causes an error
0: yeah i mean there could be some other reason you could have someone driving like a moron um but then the roads are covered in black ice and somebody the crosses
1: bod- yeah you're driving like a moron somebody crosses the lane and runs into you in your lane
0: yeah and so yeah. you do have to in those cases you have to prove that the death or bodily harm was a direct result of the dangerous driving um, the same way in an impaired driving case, you have to show that the impairment was the direct or substantial contributing cause. Yes. Um, but the other thing that has to be proven is, and you mentioned it a bit earlier, sort of the mental intent. And that's a hard concept to wrap your brain around in dangerous driving.
1: Yeah, um, it is. And uh, that's, I guess, I have this example of the, of the Humboldt bus crash in my mind and that's where i'm really struggling with it uh is the intent um and um and demonstrating that this driving is uh uh, what's the standard again
0: um marked departure departure
1: from from normal driving
0: and it's weird it's weird to characterize like a mental intent standard as a marked departure from the driving of a reasonably prudent driver because ordinarily like to a, a person who's not an expert in driving law you say intent and you're thinking well did they intend to drive their truck into a bus did they intend to uh to drive in a manner that was dangerous and that's not it, it's not an accurate description of what intent means in the context of driving law
1: yes that's correct
0: <laughs> it's
1: not an accurate description
0: Thankful, I, but-, but
1: it's the problem that I mean, look at the example of this uh, fellow who was speeding on, uh, on uh, where was he on? He was on uh, Granville? Uh,
0: no, and 41st
1: and nope. Oh, was it 41st No. Nope. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah, I know the spot there. Um, the, um, you know, most people look at it and uh, had he been convicted, uh, uh, he could have been convicted of excessive speeding. And most people look at that and think, excessive speeding, that's dangerous driving, especially the consequences. And the problem is that, um, and we've seen this before where, People get wrapped up with the consequences uh, of the driving when the driving in itself was driving that is normally sanctioned in some other way. Uh, you know, if you um, if you uh, fail to yield, you fail to yield. Uh, you you know, you make a mistake failing to yield for a car. If it causes an accident, you've still failed to yield. If it causes an accident and leads to the death of somebody, it doesn't automatically make it dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. Uh, it's a you know, it can be a tactical mistake that you make in good faith as you're doing your best to drive.
0: So it's going to be so hard for whoever ends up being the finder of fact in this trial. And I think, too, like if this individual who's charged and I forget his name, um, but if, if he's charged and he elects a trial by jury, where are they going to get a jury pool from?
1: Well, that could be a strategic reason to do it that way but I would imagine he's not going to do a jury because it seems to be mostly a legal issue mm-hmm. my concern I mean I'm greatly sympathetic for the driver and when I was on this radio show people were phoning in and they were showing great sympathy for the driver uh, you know it's the type of thing if you've ever driven on a, one of those highways in Saskatchewan where you can drive for an hour and a half without a turn and suddenly you come up to the stop sign Uh, where two highways basically meet as a result of a stop sign, it's very easy to run a stop sign in those circumstances without being, uh, you know, trying to be a dangerous driver or with an intent to be a dangerous driver. It it, it can just simply be a mistake. It's also
0: kind of, from what I understand, you know, my mom grew up in Alberta. I I know lots of people who grew up on the prairies. It's kind of part of how you drive uh, in those areas in the prairies. It's it's not abnormal for drivers there to sort of slow down and look and not come to a complete stop at those intersections.
1: You know what, those intersections are so dangerous in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and I grew up in Alberta. uh, And when I came to those intersections, I, you know, as I do generally, I make sure that I came to a complete bloody stop to look around and give myself a moment to make myself acquainted with what's coming down the road because things are coming down the road fast. And uh, if you try to glide through one of those intersections, it's kind of like trying to run the train. Now, if you're trying to run the train, I think you got a problem that you could be convicted. Like a yeah. a of days ago. You can yeah. be convicted of, uh, of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle if you, if you set out to run the train. If you set out to run the bus, if you set out to try and blow through that stop sign before that bus came, uh, then I could see a conviction being founded. But looking at the, at the impact speed uh, of the bus which struck the side of the truck, uh, I have trouble you know, coming to the conclusion that the guy just went blowing through the stop sign to try and race the bus. Yeah. I'm,
0: I'm
1: trying um, to figure it out. But yeah. I, what really surprises me is that I, I was very upset to see that he was put on bail conditions where he couldn't drive. That was the thing that struck me the most. $1,000 $1, bail. He's, com- he's participating. He's been assisting the police. He's been cooperative. Apparently.
0: Remained on scene, gave a statement, mm-hmm. did everything he was supposed to do.
1: Yeah, and no indication of uh, of impairment, alcohol impairment or otherwise. At least in, in that statement they said uh, that there was no indication of that. Um, or at least there was nothing that would He's lead to that. not charged
0: with any impaired driving offenses.
1: Yeah, so... I don't know, I think they've
0: got a... Uh... And the purpose of bail, like I, I think it's a real overreach. I mean, $1,000, you think to yourself, well, you know, he may be guilty of a criminal offence or may not be guilty of a criminal offence, but, you know, numerous people are dead, numerous people are are devastatingly injured. Um, isn't it, like, not asking a lot that he should not drive and that he should pay $1,000? But the whole purpose behind bail is that you're out in the community, you're on conditions, but you're still presumed to be innocent of these offenses. And the Supreme Court of Canada, um, maybe in the last year, um, talked about bail and having cash as a last resort before incarcerating somebody in um, in a bail order. And yet here you see this person with no record, no history, cooperative. He had plenty of time to flee the country and he didn't. So he's obviously not a flight risk, um, somebody who, who is doing everything they're supposed to do having to put up money.
1: Yeah, and that's money. He can't drive.
0: He can't drive. But the interesting thing about him not driving is it may work to his benefit in the long term. If he's convicted of uh, of any of these offenses, he's inevitably going to be getting a driving prohibition. There's no um, mandatory prohibition under the criminal code, but we know um, that if you're convicted, something like that, you're going to lose your license. He will have the time of his driving prohibition reduced by the amount of time he was on bail with a driving prohibition.
1: Yeah, he'll get credit for that.
0: Yeah, you get basically <laughs> like like but the same it I, is in custody but I, credit I, yeah. <laughs> um, at a one to one rate for driving prohibitions.
1: It's a huge, huge case, and obviously it's going to be something I hope is covered by legal aid and the legal aid system. I, I can't imagine
0: him oh, having to try it. and
1: figure out how to pay.
0: There's a no lawyer way. for that. Uh, th- those are the types of cases that legal aid basically has to cover. I mean, I mean, in British Columbia, there's the income guidelines and then there's the guidelines about sort of what types of offenses they'll cover you. You're not going to cover you for your alternative measures for your shoplifting charge. Um, it's going to be something you know that that you face the prospect of jail for. Multiple counts involving death of individuals. It would be abhorrent if they didn't provide coverage.
1: Well, and it's not just coverage for his legal fees. I mean, he's going to have to pay for experts and all sorts of things. Uh, I'm I'm very concerned about him, and I'm concerned about our justice system, and I'm concerned that uh, in the rush to uh, uh, pick up pitchforks, that the uh, RCMP may have uh, laid charges here when there isn't a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution which is the charge approval standard we use in BC. Anyway, concerns me greatly. Shall we move on?
0: No, because I also want to talk about another interesting legal issue that this case engages and that's forum.
1: Oh yeah, well I mean how do you find somewhere when this is something that's been a national story where there's been outpourings of emotion and deep, deep feelings held by people.
0: People who never knew any of these people that were involved or affected by this, you know, posing for photos in their jerseys. I think you told me a story about your, your kid being upset because he didn't have a jersey to wear to school on Jersey Day.
1: Yeah. the uh, Well, I mean, the, in courthouses across B.C., there was people posing with jerseys and, and putting them on uh, those photos on the uh, B.C. Uh, provincial court uh, twitter the one that's operated by the some judges apparently
0: well that would be really interesting if the courthouses i mean i don't know if the courts in saskatchewan have twitter accounts but if court staff in saskatchewan did that then how like how can you have your trial in that courthouse where those people are demonstrating something that could arguably in the course of the context of a fair trial be construed as as affecting your trial fairness
1: well first of all i don't think it's going to be i think it's going to be a judge trial Uh, i don't think it's going to be a jury trial a uh b when uh, these things happen in canada there are occasions where it is particularly uh notorious but i think jurors you know properly instructed do their best to put those emotions aside and deal with it and i my my suspicion here is that the court will take a uh, a uh, uh, robust defense of uh, of our jury system and say, look, we you know we have to pick a jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pick a jury that's the best jury you can pick, and uh, uh, let's assume that people are are fair.
0: You can apply in Canada for a change of your venue for your trial,
1: but to where? Where do you go
0: for this? I don't know. Go. I'm you go outside of Saskatchewan? Can you go across provincial borders? I don't know,
1: but uh, I think you could get a fair trial and where in do you get, like Where
0: do you get a judge from? Like, are they going to bring a judge from another province, bring someone from a Supreme Court to come sit in provincial court?
1: I have no concern about the judge having any issues with respect I'm
0: to... I'm not saying that a judge would have issues, but I'm saying that at The core of all of this has to be the accused perception of a fair trial and society's perception that he's having a fair trial.
1: I don't think you could persuade many people that a judge uh, on the bench in Canada is not capable of uh, dealing with this fairly.
0: We've seen, though, judges disciplined for not dealing with things fairly. Robin Camp, that judge who wore the Make America Great Again hat... That was really that was really dumb. Really dumb.
1: Um, but
0: <laughs> the, the judge was dumb to do that, yeah, is what we mean. Yeah. Not not it was dumb to discipline him for that. There was no point in wearing that hat into a courtroom. It had no place there. Yeah. You don't wear hats in court.
1: No, I don't. That was a bad joke, but we've seen lots of bad jokes in court. But anyway, but the uh, I I have no concerns about that and I don't think you're gonna persuade a court that the public would have a concern about judges not being able to disabuse themselves of those Uh, things they know about this from the media. That doesn't concern me. The jury, I think, is a concern, but I think the court would come out and uh, ultimately say, look, we we have a jury system in this country. We also have uh, a free press in this country, and we have to assume that people are capable of coming at these things fairly. Whether they are is a different story. I mean, I don't know why I'm not.
0: If they do have a jury trial and they, you know, make that election, there'll be likely a prelim and the prelim will be subject to a publication ban and we won't know a lot of details.
1: Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. I think it's something that will be addressed as it plays out and we'll see how it plays out.
0: All right. You saw something interesting in the news that you wanted to talk about a little bit. And I'm not up to speed on it, so you get, to, you get to steer the boat. Well, this is a driving lot
1: thing, and it's an interesting one from the perspective of a British Columbian and a former Albertan. So I was uh, fled from my homeland of Alberta <laughs> uh, to avoid persecution. Um, <laughs> to somewhere where you're 19- persecuted
0: for being uh, Albertan.
1: Persecuted for being, yeah. In 1999, I left Alberta, but I started my driving career in 1984. I got my license And I did it at a motor vehicle branch in Edmonton. And then in 1993, the Conservative, provincial conservatives, progressive conservatives, uh, at the time privatized the licensing and registration. And so there became Alberta Registries offices, which are private registries offices across Alberta, where you go to deal with your licensing. And uh, I moved to B.C. and, uh, you know, I I, I wasn't really comfortable with it in Alberta when it went to the private registry. I didn't like the idea of it. Uh, the money being spent with a, a private company. Um, there was a lot, many more branches which created work, but uh, the fees seemed inconsistent. Uh, the quality seemed, was very inconsistent from one place to the next. They're privatized companies. Uh, it kind of feels like you're going to somebody's living so, room in um, some of them.
0: Um, like a for-profit company that's running the licensing scheme. Yeah,
1: yeah. So they're for-profit, and they sell other things there too. But um,
0: I, so, heard, I got my license at Registry Services. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it. It. it uh, I suppose it created more jobs, uh, maybe lower-paying jobs because it's in the private sector. Maybe higher-paying because the Alberta economy is still done fairly well. Despite the uh, collapse in oil prices, the, somehow the NDP seems to have done not a bad job. But uh, in any event, now we've got um, a study released. It was actually conducted a few years ago that looked at some gross examples of uh, bad behavior by uh, traffic licensing staff, including uh, allegations of sex assault, some criminal uh, allegations and, uh, and other offenses and other huge ethical lapses. So you go and you go to a private company to have your driver test, for example. Really? Which, yeah, I know, it's even hard for you to believe because I you're from I B.C. where it's all run by ICBC.
0: How do you charge, like, you, we see people here rarely, but it happens, you see people charged with attempting to bribe government officials or whatever the criminal code Provision is about that for for trying to bribe the ICBC examination people.
1: Well, and in BC where it ha- it has happened before. I mean, in my life in BC, I remember uh, ICBC examination people getting into trouble for this. Uh, there has been occasions where maybe people have successfully bribed uh, the examination people. I know it's something that that. Uh, uh, many people look at uh, drivers driving and wonder how they got their license and assume that there's a bribe, a bribe behind it. Uh, but in Alberta, it appears there has been occasions where there's been bribes, and the perception is that people are uh, otherwise failing their tests um, because that's an opportunity for the company to get another chance to collect from you on a retest.
0: So they deliberately fail you, even though you pass.
1: Well, they just grade you harshly, probably, so they can fail you. Um, and yeah, I guess in the end, deliberately fail you, so you have to go redo it. If you don't redo it here, you go redo it somewhere else. And some of the Alberta registry companies are fairly large, so you got a fairly good chance you're going to go into one of their branches. Um, I would imagine that uh, they are going to vigorously defend uh, their industry uh, of registries because they're probably really worried that the NDP is going to bring it back in-house uh, I don't think there's been any savings for people, uh, and frankly, I have no problem with the government running the DMV, so long as they run the DMV relatively well, which is the ongoing concern, because everybody gets sick of taking a, you know getting in line at the DMV.
0: Is this sort of a foreshadowing of what might happen if we privatize, like, ICBC's insurance side of things? I know that's been one of the, you know, there's a group out there that says, oh, we should go to the private model.
1: Well, I think Andrew Wilkinson, the BC Liberal leader, is philosophically motivated to privatize ICBC and probably privatize the registries and, and follow the Alberta model. I mean, he the guy lives in, uh, in uh, the wealthiest neighborhood in British Columbia, probably, and that's the people who elect him and they are just by their very nature always wanted to privatize everything um, and I know when uh, when Gordon Campbell was in, I, you know, I spoke with him about ICBC and he said that was something that he was never willing to do but he acknowledged that a huge contingent of people in the Liberals wanted nothing more than to privatize basically because they've got significant connections with the big Ontario insurance companies right. uh, that really want to set up here and you pay here and the money goes back to Ontario.
0: So, I mean, obviously, we have a you know more socialist government. Privatization is not likely to happen in BC.
1: Well, not not under the NDP. If the Liberals yeah. are reelected, then we're probably facing the you know I think it's it's almost inevitable that one at one point or another when the um, when the BC Liberals get in, they're going to privatize ICBC because they were setting it up to privatize it. They were I trying to set it. Yeah, they were setting it up to fail to say, look, this is a failed model. We've got to privatize it. Uh, that was their whole goal um, leading up to this last election. And they expected to be reelected. And they thought that they would do that. Instead, the NDP was elected and they got to expose what was going on.
0: I don't think I'm cynical about uh, about Safety BC and policing. Paul Doroshenko cynical about the BC Liberals.
1: I'm a former BC liberal, and I, I, <laughs> I talk well to, to, like to a lot of the people in there, and, and you know, I, 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 there's aspects of ICBC I really, really don't like. And back when ICBC was advertising, you know, to check out our rates when they have a monopoly on basic auto insurance, uh, you know, I found that offensive. It, it was as offensive as living in a, uh, in a um, socialist country where they're saying, you know, down to the grocery store consume here we have all of these things that consume and you go down there and there's nothing on the shelves, or you you have one choice there's no options
0: instead you can go to your your private licensing office and uh, once they fail you so that they can collect from you a second time get a cool t-shirt that says I came to the licensing office and all I got was this lousy t-shirt
1: I suppose. Anyway, I, I'm I'm not supportive of the uh, of the Alberta system. I lived in Alberta and BC. I was uh, from '93 until
0: '99, when I
1: moved here. No, I didn't go through the. Um, you know, I did my exams with the government okay. examiner, and uh, I never tried to bribe them, and they didn't sexually assault me.
0: Alright, well I, d- I did my exams with a government examiner here who I think felt very sorry for me after I uh, had previously failed. I failed my first uh, driving exam because I missed a school zone sign, so I in the school zone and that's an automatic fail. Um, and then the second time I could not park. I couldn't park it in reverse, I couldn't park it in front, I couldn't parallel park it. Uh, if you had asked me to park it in a field, I would have been in the in a pond. <laughs> it was just one of those bad parking days and uh, lives, one of those bad parking lives. Um, and so I technically failed, but he took pity on me and passed me anyway.
1: Well, I was, I, I failed my exam too. I was... Uh... So I was a learner at age 14, and when I went to do the exam, like three days after I turned 16 in Alberta, I was driving a Renault Fuego Turbo, and it was my second time to drive a manual transmission car. <laughs> and uh, I, I, um, I think there was a pedestrian um, who wanted to cross, and in Edmonton, man, you stop if there's a pedestrian on the, at the intersection, and, mm-hmm. and I shoulder-checked. And changed lanes and I was so focused on the shifting and everything I didn't see the person stepping up to the intersection so they failed me on that but I did such a good job parking that Renault Fuego turbo that they uh, waived me having to do it next time so the only thing I had to do was the little short drive not the parking part when I went back a week later and passed the exam
0: So the the reality is that if you see people driving around and you're wondering how the hell did this person even get a driver's license? They it has nothing to do with bribes. It has nothing to do with privatization system. Apparently, government examiners even will just pass people who suck at driving. Well,
1: I mean, I don't think I sucked at driving. If that damn pedestrian had just stepped a few meters back from that intersection, <laughs> didn't I would, see me coming? I know. I would have been. <laughs> I would have been fine.
0: Anyway, so you're saying to them unless they're lying. You see me
1: in vancouver it's like nobody stops for a pedestrian and i always have this cringe of guilt if i'm not you know slamming on the it brakes and yeah the
0: law in british I know. here's a point and of stop. education for all listeners on a random provision of the motor vehicle act you probably don't know about um in british columbia it is uh technically illegal to proceed through an uncontrolled intersection if a pedestrian wants to cross they have the right of way
1: I know that, and I think most people know. know that and should know that.
0: I didn't know that.
1: I can't believe you didn't, know, didn't that. know that. Because I didn't know that until I read the act. The only, you know, I, I've driven in uh, Ontario, and it's touch and go with respect to that. In Manitoba, for the most part, people seem to stop when they see a pedestrian there. Uh, in Quebec, I don't never did see anybody stop for a pedestrian. In Vancouver, the pedestrians are pretty much expected to run uh, across the street in between cars at uncontrolled intersections.
0: In the and, middle of the street. But
1: in Edmonton. Uh, more so than any other place I've ever seen. The drivers will stop for a pedestrian at any time, and they are so strict about that, uh, just as a sort of a behavioral issue, and I'm surprised because I don't think I've ever seen any enforcement of it, but people do it, and it's a real cultural thing in Edmonton, just like it's a cultural thing in Manitoba to drive side-by-side, blocking both lanes at 10 kilometers an hour under the speed limit.
0: I've never driven in Manitoba, so I'll have to take your word for it. But I, hearing that, don't think I ever want to because I would, I would channel the frustration of Ian Tuttle.
1: I've talked to people uh, <laughs> who are from Manitoba, and I tell them about it, and I say next time you go back to Manitoba, you pay attention to it because people are going to drive side by side, ten kilometers an hour under the speed limit on the highway when with no other cars around. And sure enough, they do. It's just uh, everybody comes back and reports, "Wow, I, you know, I lived there for years and I never noticed it." <laughs>
0: But what, what what do you think in the end? Like, do you think privatization was an effective system for Alberta, or did it open things up way too easy for abuse?
1: There's always upsides and downsides. I don't see. I, didn't, I never did see a significant advantage or any advantage except shorter lines, uh, and shorter lines could have been accomplished by the government just adding more staff. Uh, and again, the, you know, the, the fees apparently are inconsistent from location to location, which seems unfair. There's way too much room for abuse, which seems uh, a, a significant concern. Uh, and licensing, you know, to me, is a connection you have with your government and your society. And I think it's a good thing that you have to go in there uh, and sometimes uh, deal with the government. You also walk out of there each time uh, with the thought, I don't want the government uh, doing too much. So yeah, you leave
0: there and yeah. you hate the government the right amount. <laughs> just the right, just amount. The right yeah,
1: amount. yeah. I mean, if you go to ICBC driver services, sometimes it's awful. And actually, this is something I wanted to talk about, and I've wanted to talk about for a long time. It's not really something maybe for this podcast today, but when I go down to driver services office, often I'm filing you know multiple documents for clients, and I look at the at the other counters. And you can overhear all of the discussions. You're sitting there half Mm -hmm. the time, and you can hear everything that's going on. And I think ICBC uh, and driver services could face a significant investigation by the Privacy Commissioner for violations of the Personal Information Protection of Privacy Act, because you're your information is exposed as you're standing there at the counter. For example, the one over here on Broadway, uh, it's so tight in there. There's so little room in there that you, you have no choice but to sit there. And I, I feel voyeuristic. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there listening to somebody's private information and I don't want to do it as I've taken my number and waiting in line. And I, I think this is something that the government did not consider when they passed that legislation, uh, that it also applies to them. Uh, with respect to providing these services. And, and I I was motivated enough one day that I drafted a letter to make a complaint about it, and then I didn't send it in because I'm so cynical. I thought nobody would do anything. but
0: well, If anyone's listening who cares, do something.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, the um, Privacy Commissioner was listening to an interview a few years ago when I was on the Simi Sarah show and then conducted an investigation with respect to Um, the way that uh, criminal records, uh, the information that's released on the document for criminal record checks in B.C., and that led to, first of all, a denial by the police that they were doing what they were doing, but then ultimately some fairly significant changes after the Privacy Commissioner uh, commissioned a report, and that all started as a result of somebody phoning in, a caller on CKNW, calling in uh, to sort of mention how that affected them, uh, and then CKNW calling me to ask me, you know, what this is all about, and they called me, they called the right guy because I was like ready to rant on it, yep. uh, and did, and that did lead to a change. So um, maybe uh, this is a topic for CKNW is uh, the uh, personal information protection of privacy uh, law being uh, applied to ICBC at the driver services center.
0: Okay, well that is driving law. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, and uh, if you want to reach us, talk about your feelings about your privacy rights being violated at ICBC, privatization, the bus crash, charged with dangerous driving, I don't know. Um, we can be reached at 604-685-8889 or acumenlaw or vancouvercriminalmaw.com, acumenlaw.ca.
1: You can always call us and leave us a message. We're incredibly busy in the summertime just because there's so much going on, but we love to hear from you you <laughs>